Yeah, I love it. Um, and there are a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, as everyone knows, I'm a huge Guillermo del Toro fan, and I know that one of the things I'm often accused of is, oh, you love the things by the directors you love. But the directors I love, I love because I love the things by them. So it's a kind of, you know, which came first. And and also you can be disappointed. By yeah, of the course. No, absolutely. Um, in the case of this, so as you quite rightly say, there was a novel 46, film 47, sort of, you know, film noir. And this has one solid foot in the genre of film noir, just in case it didn't come through. Clearly, or you, you've missed the interview. So the plot is essentially that Bradley Cooper is Stanton Carlyle, who we meet torching the home, torching the family home, then joins a travelling carnival where the first thing that happens is he is entranced by and revolted by the spectre of the geek, who is a character who is described as barely human. Is he even human? This kind of this character who is at the kind of depth of human degradation. And he's being rolled out by Willem Dafoe as a carnival act. And we learn that the way in which geeks are formed is that it's a, it's a result. It's, it's a, you know, a carnival thing about getting people who are stricken by poverty and addiction. And, you know, there's a lesson about how you turn somebody into that level of degradation. Meanwhile, he becomes in, uh, fascinated by the specter of mentalism and mind reading. And he learns from Zena the Seer, the seer and her partner, a coded system. And he realises, because he is a natural-born con man, I mean, yes, innocent to some extent, but he's a natural-born con man, he realises, huckster, I think is the word you used, mm. that he can do this. So the first half of the movie takes place within the confines of the carnival. And the second half of the movie then moves to the cities two years later, where he's doing this act as Master Stanton, the great Stanton, in which he is doing a very sort of posh show in which he mind reads. He is challenged by Kate Blanchett's character, who is a, a psychoanalyst, who thinks that what he's doing is all hooey, but he kind of manages to get away with it. And as a result of this, he is then effectively offered the chance to sell his soul. And being the person that he is, he jumps at the chance. That's all you need to know about mm -hmm. the plot. Guillermo described the plot as a ramp. I thought it was a lovely description about the thing about, I've got a brilliant crane shot, I've got a fantastic shot, but I'm going to take it away because it looks too showy and because the whole thing has to build to this very, I mean, Guillermo, you could almost feel Guillermo wanting to talk about the end and well done to you, incidentally, for saying, which we won't talk about. No, which we well, won't he, talk he, about. He, he wanted really to tell did. us about it. But the reason he does is because... The, there is a kind of Greek tragedy level to the way the story works, which is it is inevitable. It goes to where it is inevitably going because it is a story about somebody haunting themselves. It is a story about somebody trying to escape from themselves. But actually, the thing they're on the run from is the thing they can't run from. And... So as a sort of existential story, I, I love it. And I love the fact that he read the book first and then saw the film and thought, OK, there's another film to be made out of this. The other, so it's very dark and it's very bleak and it has that very sort of, you know, film noir attitude to human nature, which is fairly dyspeptic and things are, you know, out of whack and everything's dark and shadowy. But also there is a huge joy in it because what Guillermo is, is a, a lover of cinema. And so he wants to take you into this world. And this is always the thing with Guillermo's films is that they take you into a world, whether it's the world of Hellboy, which is a world of kind of, you know, strange 
supernatural superheroes to some extent, or whether it's the world of the devil's backbone in which you absolutely believe that you are in that orphanage, or whether it's the world of Pan's Labyrinth in which the whole point is everything that happens above Spanish Civil War, you know, all that stuff, and everything that happens below Pan's Labyrinth or the Labyrinth of the Fawn, as it should properly be called, because it's not Pan, obviously, they're equally real. And that thing about world building is the thing that he does brilliantly. And part of me feels like that question about if he got the rights to do this around the time of Kronos, he wouldn't have had the facilities to make the film that he's made now because he's making this having made Shape of Water, which is a huge, you know, massive success and Oscar winning. So he has the resources to make the film he wants to make. It was a lovely phrase he used. It's a $100 million movie made for $60 million. But it looks fantastic. I mean, you know, the way in which it's it's designed is is, is really sort of easy on the eye because it's so it, it draws you right in it's Tamara Devereaux a production designer it has a fantastic score by Nathan Johnson who incidentally stepped into the role very late in the day because origin, the original composer was separated from Guillermo as a result of, of uh, Covid so they, and they needed to be in the room I mean you can tell with with Guillermo, you know, you were doing that thing by long distance. But what you really want with him to be is to get your fingers into the, you know, to be in the in in the room with him. So I love the way it works as a piece of cinema, and I love the fact that it is it is as bleak and as you know forthright in following that narrative through as it is without ever being a depressing film. We'll talk about this, I think, a little bit later on when we're talking to Jason about his film, because, again, it's that thing about dark subject matter. But does that necessarily mean that the film is you know, something you have to suffer through? Nightmare Alley is a, is, it's really enjoyable, but it's really dark, and it's in a, in a really kind of deliciously um, uh, uncompromising way. Bradley Cooper is great. I mean, I, you know, you got Bradley Cooper long before I did. You interviewed Bradley Cooper quite early on when he'd made some fairly disposable film, and you were very taken by I, him. I, no, I like him, and he, and he is one... It's a particular gift some people... He's effortlessly charming. Yeah, effortlessly charming, but also there are places in this film in which he has to be other than charming, in which he has to... Yep. Yeah. And, <laughs> and then some. And then some, and he doesn't, in exactly the same way that in that performance that he gives in Licorice Pizza, in which he's playing John Peters, in which he's completely out there you do see that progression from effortlessly charming to utterly not in that world. And the other thing I like about the film is it's, it's a, it's a razor-sharp balancing act between, on the one hand, a fantastical world, the carnival... I mean, it's, it, this owes a lot to Todd Browning's Freaks. You know, it's that similar sense of the carnivalesque world in which actually there is a real comradeship and this interloper comes into it, but it's a kind of fantastical world that exists within its own preserved bubble. And yet it also has that kind of neorealist feet on the ground. You do believe in these characters. You do believe this stuff, even when the sets are, even when we get into the city in which you don't see the sky and you don't see the outside. And it's all to do with the, you know, the angular construction of Kate Blanchett's room and the bit with the tape recorder that comes out that looks like something out of Thunderbirds rather than Stingray. And, and it's always snowing. And it's always snowing. And I mean, I, I just... I loved it. I thought it was just terrific. Did you think it might? It was a little bit too long. No, I did think it was a little bit too. Long. I didn't. There was a. There's a. The only time I allowed, quietly. I mean, this is preposterous, really. I was slightly annoyed. There was. Uh, 
when I was a kid, I loved magic and I loved yes. mind reading and mentalism. Mentalism, yeah. And the, the, the routine that they do, I had learned. I could do that. No! I did that whole mind reading routine, which I got from a book, which is called The Complete Home Entertainer. It was one of those... Kind <laughs> that of was you. It was a 1930s <laughs> book. You know, it was one of those, this is how you put on a dinner party and this is how you do tricks and this is how you do mind reading. And it's that routine that they do in the... And it's the coded the thing film. about when when she says, I have a, a woman here yeah. with a thing and in what she's saying there is... Yeah. yeah. So anyway, there's also... Because I think there's two routines. There's one that they use... Anyway, it's fine. But it was... Anyway, it's fine. Can I just say... I now so, can't do that mind reading act. Simon Mayo, the complete home entertainer. It's the name I, of my I think memoir. That's definitely that's Is that very the next good. one.